Deuteronomy 12, 1, 14. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on, his, on the high mountains and on the hills, under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, and your households in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet to rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to this place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your first finest vows, offering that you vow to the Lord, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes there, you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome to Sojourn. One of our priorities here is the gospel. We believe that uh, we are more sinful than we would dare even believe, but also at the same time, we are more loved than we can know by God. And because that's true, we turn to his word each and every week. Uh, We believe that because we're both sinful and loved, that we need passages like Deuteronomy 12 to address us, because these are the words of the Lord. I'm wondering this morning if you have a place that matters to you strictly because of relationship. Our hometown, I'm from, my wife and I are both from Fairview, small town west of here, and I don't particularly like that location. (laughs) There's not something specific about that location. There's actually many times if I go there, I'm thinking, I wish this was closer to the mountains or the beach or like somewhere that seems to be like a fun place to be, Um, and it's none of those things, but... I still love that place, and I don't love it because of its location. I love it because of what it has meant to me relationally. This is where I, my family's from. This is where I'm from. This is where I met and grew up with my wife. This is where I went to church and was discipled in the faith. So the, the relationships there matter deeply, while the location to me doesn't at all and wish it was somewhere else at the time. Now, likely you have a place 
like that. Maybe it's your hometown. Maybe there's a certain restaurant that you didn't care about the food, but, but you met your, you know, your wife there or your husband there, or, or you have a deep friendship that was developed there, something along those lines uh, at that specific place. And if you have that kind of place, then you can kind of recognize a little bit why in Deuteronomy 12, the, the idea and the concept of place keeps coming up over and over again. You're wondering, like, why is a place such a big deal? Well, God wants to direct Israel in Deuteronomy 12 to a place. And that place matters not so much because of the specific coordinates and location of that place, but more because relationship with God matters. And God wants his people to be a worshiping people, to worship him, his way, at his place. And he gives the place, and he's going to give the way. So chapter 12, we've started a new section in the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses begins kind of an exposition of the law, and he's preaching this law out to them. Remember, this isn't just a a hero of the rules written down for you. He's, He's preaching a sermon to them from these laws, exposing it to them, recapitulating the law that they have to a new generation so that they would go into the land as a people prepared to live before God in the land that he has given them. And so these words, as we hear from Moses, are words from God. They are words to be kept. Chapter 12, verse 1, he tells us again something that we've heard many times, it seems, already in 11 chapters of Deuteronomy. He says, these are the statutes and the rules that you should be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. Again, we have it in front of us, like God's commands, God's words are for you as his people to do, to keep them. You you need to obey these commands. God's people are never to be a people apart from God's word. And that that is from then onward. God's people are a people of God's word for both their existence. They literally don't exist apart from the the very word of God and for their sustenance, for them to be sustained. They aren't sustained apart from God's word. We are to know they are to know that man does not live on bread alone. It's this constant lesson that that Moses is weaving into almost everything that he's saying is that God's people are connected to God's word. And so let's not forget this basic, repeated, foundational truth that, that Moses is trying to solidify, that God's people and God's word are connected vitally to one another. Israel is to be this people who is a a people of the word, who when they go into the land, they are to do this word. They are to keep this word. They are to be careful in the land that was promised to them. And and even that it's a promised land reminds them of this, right? Where was this promised? He gave it. He handed it down to this generation in the word. He promised this land to them in the word. And so Moses is, is saying, you need to be a people of the word. His primary concern for them, then as he addresses them as God's people going into God's place, is theological. In other words, these laws aren't just a, a list of rules that you need to, that you are now obligated to keep because we're rule keepers. These are theological laws and rules. They are for their life under God's reign, under God's rule. They are uh, a receiving of his care and his leadership because Israel is not just any people. They're God's people. And God has chosen them to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the earth. And because that's true, they are to be a people who listen to his word, receive it, and are careful to do it. They are to be a a people before the Lord as a worshiping people who honor him above all things, which means they are people of the word. And the nature of the people and then of their lives and of their worship, all being theological, all concerning God, helps instruct them as they go along the way. 
Verses 2 and 3, Moses continues, You shall surely destroy then all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. So once they're in the promised land, God says, I'm going to dispossess the nations in front of you. You're going to be used as this instrument of dispossession of these nations, and you're to do something when you get there. You're to destroy their places of worship. There's a destruction that's going to happen before there's any construction. And, and these places of worship would have been places of kind of their, their religious cult, right? They're, they're carrying out the, their sacrifices to their God. Or for instance, you, you might know that there's a lot more than just sacrifices going on there here, although we see at the end of chapter 12 that some of these sacrifices were, were pretty horrific. This had also been the place where they would have gone to some, some of their fertility rituals so that they could get produce from the land. And so, again, I don't know if I need to fill in your imagination with what that might have included for some of these nations, but it could be pretty graphic and pretty horrible. And so he says, once you go into these places, you need to destroy them. The, the Canaanites, they would, those that were in the promised land, they would set up kind of open-air temples, just places where they would, you know, in a sense, meet with their God. They were maybe at a unique tree, like tree looks great, let's put a place there, our God must have made this place, or, or a great view on a high hill. And so this is why often you, you hear of the high places. They would, they would put them up high so they get this kind of grandiose view. And often they would set up some sort of image there. I, I have a picture of, of what this could potentially look like. Or they'd have a, a stone maybe or a tree shaped in a certain image. Maybe we don't have it. Uh, and and they, would, they would have this set up. And this place, when they wouldn't necessarily worship the stone or the tree that these places would be places that they'd mediate the presence of their God, whatever that God was. So that, in other words, they would say, maybe our God doesn't dwell in this tree, but this is tree is mediating his presence so that we can sacrifice here, we can meet here, and our God can be worshipped here. And here's what they're to do. They're to destroy these places. So a lot of these places in Canaan, they would use these images as a representation of God's presence of their God's presence and Israel's to go in and destroy these places, destroy the images, destroy the altars. Notice the ways that he describes this. Tear them down, dash them, burn them, chop them. I mean, does that pretty much cover how you can destroy a thing? Right? He's trying to like, like, let's make sure we get all this covered. Like, what material is it? You might need to crush it. Some of them you're going to need to burn, you're going to chop them, you know, like whatever you got to do, let's make sure it's completely torn down. And that might seem extreme, but it's not. And here's why. When we look in the book of Judges, not too far, right? We move from Moses, and then Joshua's going to lead them into the promised land, right? The book of Joshua. And right after Joshua dies, there's the book of Judges. Let's look at the book of Judges for just a second, and let's see why this is so important that they destroy, chop, tear down, burn, dash. In Judges chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 2. It says, the Lord said to Judah, no, oh, that's chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 2, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars. But guess what's happened? You have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? I'm going to skip down to look at what they've done in verse 11. And the people of Israel, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods from among gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. 
and they provoked the Lord to anger. And they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And we can continue. Their idolatry continues. This is why they're not to ignore those places in the land. Because God knows the inclination of their hearts and how quickly they can turn aside to, to instead of serving the one true living God, they, they, they end up serving idols. The, the places they would say, like, clearly this is not where God dwells. That those kind of places, they would be drawn into worship and even bowing down at these places. And so when God says, gives them instructions as they go into the land, they're not to ignore these places. Don't say, hey, we know they're there, but we're going to set up another place, so just let it go. Don't say manage these places. You know, like, yeah, shut them down, but they can stay there. Then say leave them up and, and just leave them up with the knowledge that those aren't real gods. He doesn't do any of that. Destroy them. Cut them down. Burn them. Chop them. Because God knows that they're a deadly danger to his people. That they could lead them astray. There ought to be no high places for Israel as they go in. Because the danger of sin and idolatry is in their hearts. And again, while we look around us today, there's probably not the same danger of high places around us today as there were then. But the danger of sin and idolatry remains, doesn't it? And Jesus warns. He gives this extreme warning, almost like burn, chop, cut, like crush. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off or go to hell. This is warning, Matthew chapter 5, verse 30. In other words, he's saying, be careful with how you handle sin. Sin is dangerous. Or Paul, he instructs the Colossians this way in Colossians chapter 3. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these two, you once walked when you were living in them. All of us once walked in idolatry or are still walking in it. And the way, Paul says, to those who had once walked in idolatry is not to manage it. Not to kind of ignore that it's there. The way to deal with idolatry in which we once walked is to put it to death, he says. Almost like burn, chop, cut, crush, get rid of it, destroy it, put it to death. Don't ignore it. Don't try to manage it. Put it to death. It reminds me of the famous words of the Puritan John Owen when he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Here's what he said just before that. Be always at it. Be always at killing sin, mortifying. Be always adding it at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Always at it. Cease not. Be killing it. It's not because he's an alarmist. It's because he understood the nature of sin. So he understood what Paul was saying in Colossians 3, 5. That if we once walked in sin and idolatry, he says, here's what you got to do with that. The only one way to handle that is that is to put it to death. Kill it. It's because he knew, along with Paul, the nature of sin. So there are no probably ashram for us to burn. But there are idle remnants in our hearts. And Paul says that there's one thing that we do with that. We put it to death. Be killing sin or sin will be killing us. And so God's instructions here, yeah, they might seem extreme. Burn, chop, cut. They're meant to protect Israel from idolatry. 
the kind of idolatry that their hearts are inclined to move towards. And also, it's pretty clear that, that God wants his people to be distinguished from the people in, in Canaan. And so we see this more clearly in chapter 12, verse 4. He says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Notice the contrast in the first couple of verses. In, in, chapter, in verses 2 and 3, he says, their gods, their gods. But then he switches verse 4, but you shall not worship the Lord your God. In other words, there's a really clear line of distinction. Here's how they do with their gods, but the Lord your God, we don't worship him in that way. There's a line of distinction because there's one God that's above all gods. Now, only one God. And, and because he is a distinct God, he needs to have his way of worship, not the way of these other gods. The Lord God is not worshiped in that way because he's not like those gods. And that must be clear to Israel. We don't go that direction. That's not our God. Our God is distinct from them. And so God is careful with his instructions to protect against the wrong kind of syncretism that could happen in the land. Of uh, We know that we have the one true living God, but we can use their kind of way of doing it. And God is really clear, not that way. I'm not that God. Don't worship me in that way. And so the first thing that's in order is to not only displace those nations, but to displace their false worship. Verse 5 goes on, you shall seek and set a different place. Seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and to make his habitation there. There you shall go and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice, you and your households and all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. And he's going to send them into the land displace these places of false worship. You're going to tear them down, burn them, chop, chop them, put them to, to pieces. And he's commanding a, a specific place. God is going to, in the land, give them this central place of worship. He is centralizing the worship of Israel as they can move into the promised land. So the offerings and sacrifices and tithes and eating and rejoicing, they are to come to this place. And he is clear, this isn't any place. This is God's place. Right? Verse 13, take care that you don't offer your burnt offering at any place. Instead, verse 14, but at the place that the Lord chooses. Or verse 17 and 18, you see the same kind of delineation and distinction. Verse 17, you may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil or the firstborn of your herd or of your flock or any of your vow offerings that you vow or your freewill offerings or the contribution that you present. Not any place. But, verse 18, you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place. The same delineation. Verse 26, again, the holy things that are due to you and your vow offerings, and you shall take them and you shall go to the place that the Lord will choose. And so it's not any old place that they are to do these things. It's the place. Now, again, we have to ask, like, why is this place such a big deal? That there is an actual place of worship that's, that's made as a place like this is where the people go to worship isn't unique at all. We already know that, right? The, the Canaanites, they're already in the land. They had places of worship. And so that there's a place set aside for worship wasn't unique to Israel at all. What's unique about this place of worship is that God is going to choose it. All the other places, maybe a king chose it. Like this is the place we're going to worship. Perhaps they chose it because there's, again, a unique tree here. This will be the place of worship. Maybe God has come down on this place and made this tree this way. Or maybe 
this is close to the fields where we're going to plant. And so let's make sure we set up our place of worship and sacrifice where we want God to bless us and pour out the, the, the crops and the produce of the land. Let's put our place of worship close to that. All those things could have happened. All those things could have decided where. But God says, here's how you decide where. It's the place I choose. It's the place that I'm going to lead you to. You can seek that out. It's not based on closeness to the field or some sort of unique tree or maybe a good mountain view. It's just based on what God has chosen. It's his chosen place. And the importance of that place then isn't so much about the exact location, but about God's direction, about them continuing to be a people who are submitted to the Lord to say, we want to do and worship and how you want us to worship about the place you want us to worship. They're to live under the ordering of God. And here's what God is ordering. There's a place, not any old place. You need to go to the place. They are repeatedly a people who are to do the, the commands of God, and here God puts in front of them another command to do. Go to the place. Depend upon me to show you where it's at and to tell you this is the place because you are to be a people that doesn't depend on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. And because it's one place, not many, the Canaanites would have had many places of worship. God says there's one place. And because Israel will spread out across the land, and so they're not all in one place like they've been in the wilderness since they've come out of Egypt. Because that, he's saying, here's the place that you need to go to. In other words, all these people that are spread out all over are going to continue to depend upon God and his word to go to that place. So all over the promised land, the people that aren't in that place are going to continue to depend upon the word of the Lord to worship. They're going to continue to face the decision, I can go on depending upon God's word, trusting that that is the place and not that this is the place, and continue to walk out in obedience or not. They can go worship at that place or they cannot. The decision stays in front of them. I like what one author said, that they are to maintain a nomadic spirit of dependence upon Yahweh in the land, physically represented by the periodic journey within the land to meet with God at the place of his choice. All the people that aren't in the place are going to have to continue to depend upon God's word to worship and to meet with God because God is making the place for them to meet with him. So living and moving upon dependence upon God is, is still part of who they are as the people of God. And it strikes me that it doesn't end when they enter into the promised land. Like, oh yeah, you learn to depend upon manna, but now when you go into the promised land, you don't need to depend upon that anymore. I'm, I'm providing for you in an abundance. But remember, the manna was about more than just physical feeding. It was about depending upon God. And God says, as he leads them to the promised land, that hasn't ended. You're going to continue to need to depend and live in dependence upon me for this relationship to continue because there's the place where God is going to meet with them and be in their midst. It's not many places. It's this one place. And this place is chosen by God. And that choosing by God encourages those people that don't live in that place to continue to live in dependence upon God for relationship with God. Now, we have the name here, sojourn. You might wonder what that means. A lot of people do. Like, what's a sojourn? Like, a sojourn is a journey. It's a quest. We're being reminded in our very name that we're not home, that we haven't arrived yet. And as those who are kind of exiles in the land work to be a people who continue to live in dependence upon our God until we do arrive, until he does bring us home fully 
Sojourn then reminds us of the same thing, that we're people who are continue to live in dependence on God. This isn't our place. We have to look to him to provide us all that we need before we get to our land. We know we have a destination. We know that's where he's taking us. We're not there yet. And so we live in dependence upon God. Same thing, the place that God is choosing is not so much about the location. There's more that God is doing with this. This is a a theological place, not just a a coordinates on the map. That's also seen in that God puts his name there. Did you notice that in verse 5? This is the place, out of all these places, this is the place that he's going to put his name and make his habitation there. Or in verse 11, it says, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, then you're going to do these things. Or in verse 21, he says, if the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there, and he's going to give instructions for that. In other words, this is a place over and over again that God has chosen and he's placed his name. Again, it's more important than the exact location. It's interesting here. We probably know the location, right? We know that they're going to move toward Jerusalem. We know that they're going to set up a temple there. But, but that name is not given in this chapter. They don't know the place, the site. He doesn't give that, give that to them. It's unnamed. He doesn't give them coordinates. He says, seek the place that I'm going to show you. In other words, even though this place is a place that God, it's going to bear God's name, God hasn't given it to them yet. Again, they're to live upon dependence upon him. But in chapter 12 is more concerned with the who of the place rather than the where. Whose place is it? Not about the coordinates of it. The, the, the name is, is bearing God's name. That, that place is bearing God's name reminds us that God is going to set aside this place specially for his presence. It's especially God's place. It's not a denial of Psalm 139 that God is everywhere. But he's saying, I'm going to dwell in my people specifically at a place. That's where you're going to come to meet. And the most essential and the most important part about the place is not the where of that place, but the who of that place. And God says, there's going to be a place and I'm going to put my name there. In other words, he's saying, my, my presence is going to especially be in that place. Now, you might remember the, the, the tabernacle. The, the tabernacle was the place where Israel would meet with God. God was dwelling amongst his people in that tabernacle. And in that tabernacle, there's, there's a place within a place, right? There's the, you, you know, we have my people are here, and then there's the holy place. And then even outside of the holy place, there's the most holy place. In other words, there's a holy, and then there's a holy of holies. There's a place within a place where God's presence especially dwelt with his people. You could see the same pattern in Eden. God created all things. But of all those things, like there's a place within that place, a garden where God put man. That was the place where God and man would meet and would walk with one another. There was a place within the place. And and chapter 12 here speaks of a place within a place. There's the promised land. That's the place that's in front of you. And inside the promised land, inside my place that I have given to you is is another place, a place within a place. And that place bears bears my name. And so in other words, what I think this is doing is, is establishing something. It's, it's showing us something about what is said before and saying there's something more than about this place, about the coordinates. It's, it's a place within a place. This is where God's presence is especially going to be. This place is about God's presence in your midst. And that is what really sets it apart from all these Canaanite places. The God's there. The Lord is going to make his name be there. His presence is especially going to be there. That's what makes this place different. Again, one commentator says, if Yahweh, the Lord, is not actually present at the place, 
then there's no qualitative difference between it and the cultic places to be destroyed. The difference in Canaanite places and the place chosen by Yahweh would then be reduced to one of sponsorship, with a new sponsor demanding a change in venue. This is surely not what the Deuteronomist has in mind. God has in mind his presence with his people, where they can come and meet with him. And he says, I'm going to have a place within the place. Deuteronomy has presented the promised land as this ideal place. Very Edenic, right? A place of abundance, a place where God and man can meet. That's in contrast with Egypt and with the wilderness. But God is bringing Israel into the promised land. And his bringing them into the promised land is about much more than just enjoying the abundance of the land. It's much more about than just working through the ritual of worship. It's about meeting with God and being with, in relationship with God. And so if they're going to enjoy relationship with God, they need this place within the place. It's about worship. And for worship to take place, they're going to need God's presence. True worship requires God's presence. And so here's what God does. He sets aside a place within the place so that they can meet with him. He's graciously then going to lead them to that place so that the relationship could continue in the right kind of ways. Now, Solomon is going to come along eventually and set up a, a temple in Jerusalem, we know the, the place within the place, and it's this beautiful temple, this beautiful place. And do you remember what Solomon does when he dedicates this? In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, we read of the, the dedication of the temple, and it says that the house of the Lord at that time, again, the, the place where God's presence specifically dwells, it, it filled that place with the cloud. And so the priest couldn't even stand and minister because the cloud of the glory of the Lord filled that place. It was so thick. And here's what Solomon says, kind of in response to all that's happened. Verse, chapter 6, verse 8, But the Lord said to David, my father, Whereas it was in my heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Skip down to I think it was verse 18. But God will indeed dwell with man on the earth. Behold, will he indeed dwell with earth on man? Behold, Here's what Solomon knows to be true. The heaven, heaven and the highest of heaven cannot obtain you. How much less this house that I have built. Whereas Moses, or Solomon has gotten this place and he's, it's filled with the glory of the Lord. And he says, there's no way that this place could even hold you. So in other words, something is being communicated here that God is graciously there. God can't be contained within a house, but God comes to that place. Nothing can contain him, and yet he meets with them there. God comes down, in other words, for relationship with them, to meet with the people so that they could continue worship and relationship with him. And years later, Israel got to this place that Moses is speaking about, and years after the temple was built and destroyed, God did it again. Because over and over again, he provides for them a place to live in right relationship with him. And over and over again, they turn to other things. And so the, they come along to this place within a place. They build a temple, and then they still turn away. Solomon says that, that this place can't contain you, and yet you've come here, and yet they squandered all of that. But God does it again. Do you remember what John chapter 1, verse 14 says? That the word became flesh, and he dwelt among you. He made his tabernacle in your midst. He himself took on flesh. And he took on flesh to seek and save that which was lost, to, to restore the, the brokenness between God and man because of man's sin. He did that to establish relationships so that man could enjoy relationship with God as they were designed to. The word became flesh. 
And, and Jesus, this, this word that became flesh, the God's presence on the earth, dwelling, tabernacling among man on the earth, he goes and he meets a Samaritan woman. Do you remember what the questions and the kind of the things that she says back and forth to him? She says, well, uh, there's this question of location. Like some say it's that mountain. Some say it's this mountain. We don't know what it is. And do you remember what he says back to her? He, he points to a new age of worship. And he says, no, not at that location or that location. There's a location that's different now. It, it's the location of where there's spirit and truth. That's where worship of the one true living God happens because God is going to dwell with his people by his spirit. And so he's going to be in and amongst his people. Per, perhaps Deuteronomy, it's it, giving the seed for that kind of idea, right? Because they are prepared. There's no location given here in Deuteronomy chapter 12. They just know that there's a place within a place. There's a time coming. There's a place, and, and God's going to be present at that place. And perhaps, again, that's pointing us forward to this new time when, when we don't have an exact location mapped out for us, but we know that God is going to be with his people. Still, there's no place that can contain God, but God dwells within his people. And not just individually. Corporately, God dwells with his people. God's presence, I think we could say, is especially with his people gathered. One of the most prominent images in the New Testament of the people is that they're a temple, a spiritual house. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says to them that you are citizens, fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. And let's listen to this household. What is it? It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You, you are a spiritual household and whom the whole structure is being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That is, he's speaking of people are this temple. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, he says to the Corinthians, Paul does, do you not know that you, you all, not just you individually. You all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. Or, man, we've got Paul a couple times. Let's hear from Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He talks about them as a spiritual house. He says, verse 5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christ. This is the place that God especially is displayed and present is not just individually in people who have his spirit dwelling in them. Although that's true, he's especially present with his gathered people, which tells us a few things, right? If you're not into church, then you need to maybe question whether you are into God. Because God dwells in the midst of his people, and his people gather at what we would call the church, where believers gather together for the sake of God's name, by his grace and for his glory. And where they gather, God's spirit is especially present, which means we need to be pretty hesitant with what we're saying about that place, because that's a holy place where God meets. And so if we're not really into that gathering, then maybe we're not so much into God, Amen. because that's where he's especially present. He dwells in his people. And we can gather with confidence. We don't need to wonder, is God going to meet us here? Like, God is here. 
And we are in his presence, especially in his presence as we gather together. And so we can gather with the confidence that, that God is here with us, that we are actually meeting with God, that we're not doing anything in vain here because God is in our midst and we can really worship this God because what's necessary for worship is his presence. And he's with us inside of us individually, but especially with us as his people. There's no need to, to rub the magic lamp to see if God's going to pop out this week. We don't need to set up the fog machines to make sure the atmosphere is right for him to descend. We don't need to wonder, did I pray the right prayer to make sure I invited God accurately into our service? As if it were up to us. God's here. And we can gather with the confidence of his presence. He's here because he's especially with his people. And what that means for us then is that we need to respond rightly in worship. Amen. Hearts full of thinking about the glory and the majesty of the God that would, would descend to be among his people. And that should enliven in us something great in response. Worship to God. We're his people. We're his temple. The spiritual house, this building that he has made. And he's with us. Praise be to God. And that's what this place in Deuteronomy is about too. It's about his presence with his people. It's all about that so that they can continue to be a people who are all about the worship of the one true living God. And they worship him because he's with them. And so God is centralizing their worship because this place, even though the exact coordinates aren't so vital, his presence with his people is vital. He's centralizing this place but the people, again, are going to be decentralized. They're going to be spread out over this promised land. And because that's true, God is going to give some specific instructions. Verse 15, he, he starts some of these instructions. He says, You may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire, according to the blessings of the Lord your God that he has given you. The unclean and the clean, you may eat of it as of the gazelle and as of the deer. Verse 20, we skip ahead. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory, again, they're going to be all over this promised land. As he has promised you, and you will say, I will eat meat, because you crave meat. You may eat meat whenever you desire. If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill and eat of any of the herd of your flock from which the Lord your God has given you, as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your towns whenever you desire. Just as the gazelle of the deer is eaten, so you may eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike, you may eat of it. This is good news, meat lovers, right? Like, there's freedom in the land to, like, wild game. You want to eat? Like, you, it's essentially verse 20 is talking about, like, you, you're craving a barbecue. God says, like, go for it, right? Like, have that barbecue. You, you know, you don't have to take all these animals that would have been set aside for sacrifice to this centralized sanctuary in order to enjoy them. He says you can enjoy them all over the promised land and that you should. And so God wants this provision that he's giving in the land, the abundance that he has provided within the land to be enjoyed all over the land as a decentralized people with a centralized sanctuary, a centralized place of worship. So he says, because you guys are all over the place and I want you to worship specifically here and depend upon my word, if you find some meat out there, like eat and enjoy. But within this enjoyment, he gives a few things for them not to forget, a few obligations for them. And, and I have these as, as kind of three obligations. Don't forget the offerings that you're meant to give at that centralized place. Don't forget the Levites. And don't forget to rightly handle blood. So let's look at offerings, verse 17 and 18. He says, you may not eat within your towns, 
the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil or of the firstborn of your herd or of your flock or of any of your vow offerings that you vow or your free will offerings or the contribution that you present. In other words, those aren't for you to enjoy anywhere. Those are specific things. And you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place. Not any place, the place that the Lord your God will choose. You and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant and the Levite who is within your towns. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. That is specifically at the place. Or in verse 26 and 27. The holy things that are due from you and your vow offerings you shall take and you shall go to the place that the Lord will choose. Not any place, not the place that you choose. You, you want to set up a, a way to make an offering before the Lord and you choose this place. He said, don't you take that to the place. Again, they're to live upon dependence on God's word and move to the place that God chose, right? Submitting their lives, all of it, under God's reign and rule. So go to that place. And he says, verse 27, offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat. Again, that place. And so there's an obligation. Don't forget, in the midst of all this, you know, barbecues that you're having across the promised land, don't forget, you do have obligations to offer things to the Lord in response to what he has given to you, and you need to take those to the Lord. Now, also within this is that you are to think about the Levites. He mentions them a few times in this chapter. They, they are the ones that don't have an inheritance in the land. They don't maybe have a place, like if, if you're picturing this, like there's wild game out there, gazelle and deer, maybe they're hunting on their land. He's like, the Levites don't have land. Like, so when you're hunting, you might want to consider them. So listen to verse 19. Take care that you don't neglect the Levite as long as you live in the land. As he's giving them some good gifts to enjoy, and again, when they are enjoying good gifts, it can be pretty easy to just turn inward and to be comfortable with what you're doing and forget some of these obligations, including a people that doesn't have an inheritance in the land because they're serving the Lord God. He mentions them again, don't forget them, verse 12, verse 18. So don't forget the obligation of the Levites. And then the last obligation he gives within all this talk about meat and how to eat it and not to eat it, he mentions blood several times. Verse 16, he says, all right, eat wherever you need to eat meat. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. Or in verse 23, only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it. Again, how many, he's telling them, here's, you definitely don't eat it, that all may go well with you and your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Sure, part of this is just, again, trusting God and, and knowing that his word is enough. So when he says don't eat it, don't eat it. But he also gives a few reasons and indicates why they're not to eat this blood and why it's to be poured out. Because there's life in the blood. And, and God has always wanted for them as a people, for his people to have this proper respect for life that was given, again, by God. They didn't create this thing there to then rightly honor God by respecting this life and respecting this blood. But moreover, God has designated blood to be used exclusively for something. God designated blood to be used exclusively for making atonement and sacrifice. And he is trying to get them to understand that, that blood that's used to atone for sins must never be taken arrogantly or haphazardly, You're not to just use it however you want. And this isn't for you to decide as if you gave this life and that you're in charge of these things. I've set aside blood for atonement. So don't just pour it out haphazardly or eat it haphazardly. Take it arrogantly. So think about this. While they're to enjoy the meat in the land, they must never profane the blood or overlook 
the blood as if it's an, a non-issue. It's an issue. He brings it up several times. Don't eat it. And not to overlook it. So both the eating of the meat in the land and the not eating of the blood are showing provision from God in the promised land. Yes, God gives them food to eat and enjoy in the promised land, but the blood reminds them that he has made a place for them to have a relationship with him in that land, hasn't it? That blood's for one thing. And yeah, you can kill and eat the meat, but make sure you remember that that blood is to be poured out because the only other way we use the blood, the only other thing that I've designated that blood for is atonement so that you can approach my very presence as my people. He gives them food to eat and enjoy in the promised land, but he also gives relationship for them in the promised land. And that relationship requires blood because they are sinful people and they need forgiveness to come before the Lord their God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 reminds that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. That was true for them. There's no forgiveness of your sins. There's, there's no relationship with God apart from the shedding of blood. So if, if you're going to come before God, you're going to come with blood or you don't come at all. And that's still true for us today. All are to come before God. And we come with blood because we come as sinners. We have sinful hearts. We can't appear before God on our own. He is holy and we are sinful. We don't deserve to come into his presence. And God has told us, like, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We need to come before God with blood. Now, God gave them animal sacrifices for their blood. But later, he came himself and shed his own blood. So now anyone can come through him and that blood. We don't have to then go sacrifice an animal to come before the Lord. Now, our sacrifice has been made in the person of Jesus so that now we come by his blood. And he even tells us to come confidently and boldly, which is really strange for sinful people in light of a holy God. But he tells us that because we're coming through the blood, the blood of God himself, the blood of Jesus. And so again, like, this isn't a passage about Jesus' blood that's being shed, but, but it's hard not to think like, Let's make sure we don't overlook the blood either. Let's make sure we don't profane the blood either and take that blood as something light or something that's not that big of a deal. It's weighty. Don't overlook it. Don't profane it. We think even about the Lord's Supper. We're reminded of the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. We're not to take that haphazardly. It's blood. It's life. And the life that we're celebrating and thinking about in light of the Lord's Supper is, is the blood of God himself that was shed, that we might come before him, not just now, but, but eternally, because we can't have forgiveness without the shedding of blood. The clarity of God's command to not eat blood reminds that Israel is a distinct people, and that God's way is a little bit different than maybe whatever the nations are doing. So he has to point this out. Don't eat the blood, don't eat the blood, don't eat the blood. Perhaps around them, they're having people that would have done something different. They would have maybe eaten the blood. He says, no, you're a different people. My way matters most. And that's kind of where he ends. Verse 29, when the Lord God cuts off before you the nations whom you go into dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. 
Now, as I was thinking about the, the whole passage this week, I, I almost I, I put in the email even that, that we're only going through 28, but I was convinced later on that, that this chapter is meant to be taken as a whole because of the ways you see the parallels between verses 1 through 4 and, and 29 through 32, as if they're kind of bookending this whole chapter as a unit. And you, you see those parallels so clearly. Verse 31 and verse 4 are kind of parallel. Do all that I command you. It says, don't do as their way. Uh, these abominable things. You should not worship the Lord your God in that way. Verse 4 says something similar. You should not worship the Lord your God in that way. Verse 32 and verse 1. Do everything that I command you. Verse 1, be careful to do all that I command you in the land. In other words, the, the, the point and the emphasis of all of chapter 12 is that you're going to worship God in his place, his way, not the nation's way. And all their abominable practices, you can start to put in perspective some of the reasons that God is going to dispossess them out of the land, that God is going to pour his judgment out on them in the land because of some of the things that they are doing. And here's just a sample of it. He says of you, that's not the way. You, You aren't that people. You aren't any people. You're God's people. You're not to worship at any place. You're to worship at God's place. You're not to worship anyway. You're to worship God's way. And here's what's so good is that God didn't give them any guesswork to figure that way out. As if, hey, worship my way. Try to figure it out. Good luck. No. They don't need to go the way of the Canaanites, who didn't know the way of their God, right? They didn't know what would make their God pour the rains down from heaven so that their crops would grow. They didn't know what would help them to be a healthy people in the land. And so they would get desperate at times, including some of the abominable practices that Moses talks about here, even sacrificing your children. Maybe if you're desperate and you you don't have anything in the land, maybe that's where you'd go. You don't have to worry about that being this way of the people of God because he's saying that's not the way. You're you're not to worship in any way. I'm not giving you guesswork for you to do to figure out how you're going to get food and how you're going to have life in the promised land. You know God hands down his way. How does he hand it down? Word. The word, God speaks to his people. He, he even has them write it down so that they don't forget and so they keeps it in front of their minds over and over again. Here's the way. It's written down. He's directing them so that it doesn't just go however. It doesn't say figure it out. I'm sure you'll do all right. He, he directs them because is there any doubt that where they would go if he didn't direct them? Is there any doubt of, apart from his kind and good direction where they'd go? They'd go the way of Canaan. They'd be offering their their daughters and their sons. They'd go the way of the golden calf. They've already gone that way before, right? He says, uh, I know the way this will go. You've done this before. You were just fresh off the Red Sea, and all of a sudden, here you are making an image of me. That's the way you would go. And so he directs them kindly. And he says, this isn't the way. And this is why he repeats it in verse One, be careful to do all that I have commanded you. Verse 32, be careful to do all that I've commanded you. That's why he repeats it over through the book of Deuteronomy over and over and over again. God is directing the way of his people. He's directing their worship. He's directing the way. God provides for them to worship, and he provides his way for them to worship, and it's coming through his word. The word is saying, the kind of Mandalorian here, the word is saying this is the way. It's telling us. I hope I did that right. It's not like the nations. It's not that way. It's not like the nations that God is judging and expelling from the promised land. He repeats, not that way. God doesn't want Israel to worship in that way because he doesn't want Israel to be under that judgment. 
under that curse that comes with those sins. He doesn't want them to go in that direction. But church, we know how this goes. And we've likely, you know, spoiler alert, you've read ahead a little bit. It doesn't go God's way. They don't listen to him. They struggle. They falter. They fall. They worship with the nations, like the nations, as one of the nations. They turn to other gods. They worship the ways that those nations said to worship. They give themselves to all sorts of abominable practices as the nations did. And for this, they too were judged. And as the people in the land were exiled out of the land through the means of of the Israelites, God too would, would judge his own people for their sin and they too would be exiled from the land. Yes, he would work greatly to bring them back into the land, but even as they come back into the promised land, the place within the place, their hearts were still far from God. Now, on Palm Sunday, we remember this, right? Do you remember when Jesus went into that place, when he makes that triumphal entry and he goes into the temple? Do you remember what he finds when he gets there? That Palm Sunday years ago, Jesus goes to the temple and he finds a mess. It's a wreck. Yeah, the people are at the place. Yeah, they're ascribing worship to the one true living God and not Baal, but their hearts are far from God. It's a wreck. But even there, God provides a way. A way back into relationship with him. He provides through his provision. He provides the way. It wouldn't be like sacrifices that are made at other temples. It would be through the sacrifice of himself. It wouldn't be through the shedding of the blood of animals. It would be through the shedding of his own blood. So that all then who can come before him, we can worship in the way because we follow the way and we have provision laid for us to have relationship with God because we have blood that has been shed for us by God himself, providing us a way to have relationship with God. So as we think about the way to worship, do we think about the way? God has clearly provided for us, his people He's provided for his presence to dwell among his people. He's provided for a way for his people to live in right relationship with him. He's provided for all of that to be restored, and it happens through him. He's provided. He is the way. And so as we worship, we are to respond to that way in spirit and in truth. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you so much for sending your son who over and over again we see is this one who, who came and did what we could not, who succeeded where we failed, where Israel failed, where Moses failed, where all have failed, Jesus succeeds. And who not only succeeds so that everything could be all right with him, he succeeds so that he could give that success, that righteousness to us. He takes upon himself the sin of his people, he takes upon himself what was deserved for sinners for their sin against God so that they could experience in him and through him right relationship with God. We get to come through the blood. And because we come through the blood, we not only have bright hope for today, but we also have hope for eternity. That this blood is of eternal worth and will save us not now but to the uttermost all the way to eternity.
Thank you for the blood. May we rightly respond and worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen.